Howdy, everyone. Uh, my name is Kevin Pesek. I'm a campus minister here at St. Mary's. Uh, I'd like you to invite you to listen to this awesome conversation I had with Colleen Dully. She's a reporter for Inside the Vatican, and she covered the Synod on Synodality in Rome this past month. This was a big moment for the church, uh, this movement led by Pope Francis, to discuss how we are doing church, how we are reaching out to others, and what that might mean for us as normal Catholics. So I think you'll find the conversation very interesting. Uh, this will be part one of part two. Part two will be next year in November, right, after the second session of the Synod has happened. So hope you find it interesting and enjoy. Hello, Colleen. Welcome uh, to the Fledging St. Mary's podcast, I guess. Uh, happy to have you here. Thank you. Glad to be uh living this experiment with you it's it yeah. feels feels like the synod in that it's very experimental mm -hmm. and we don't know where it's going to go <laughs> so for those of y'all who are listening i don't know so colleen Dolly uh works for inside the vatican uh which is a production of america media uh so she covers all the goings on in the vatican had the once a week podcast and she was gracious enough to be able to uh to schedule this with me to kind of talk about the synod um on how things have been going what's what's been reported and kind of uh yeah, just kind of going into all things Synod. So we're excited to talk to her. She just got back from Rome. So she was boots on the ground. I'm sure she has a lot of uh, interesting things to share with us. So Colleen, I just wanted to ask you first, um, overall thoughts on the Synod, right? Your main takeaways, we've kind of been immersed in this for about a month and you actually going to Rome. Uh, yeah, what what is kind of your experience been like kind of being there? Yeah, big question because there's mm -hmm. there's so much. Um, I guess my main takeaways from being there were, you know, as a journalist, it was a difficult job. Um, this is a meeting where they really wanted people to be able to discuss things freely and discuss things that in the past have been kind of taboo in, in church discussions. Uh, and that meant that they wanted a level of privacy around these discussions so that people could speak their minds and not have it end up on the front page of the paper. Uh, so people really hesitant to talk to journalists. The Pope asked the participants to, quote, fast from public words, uh, which, you know, we, we all heard that in the in the media uh, stand and we're <laughs> like, oh, God, <laughs> this is going to make our job a lot harder. So it was a lot of um, a lot of off record stuff, a lot of like, you know, hearing things on background. You would hear things from enough different people who had, you know, different sources and and you'd be like, OK, now I'm starting to get an image of what it's actually like. It was also a challenge to report on because people still don't really know what a synod is, what synodality is. Then you have a synod on synodality and people are like, what mm -hmm. the heck is that? This is a conversation that I've had with people in the Synod organizing office as well. Their main communications guy told me in an interview, he was like, yeah, I've really tried to stay away from the word synodality because people just don't know <laughs> what it means. Um, so there's that inherent challenge in covering it. And then uh, I guess the other challenge is even though there were a number of really hot topics discussed in the Synod, like women deacons, for example, that's uh, really not what the Synod was about. A lot of it was the process was the point. So it mm -hmm. kind of, the journey is the destination kind of vibe. Um, the point was to get people sitting together, discussing, getting bishops, listening to lay people, working on, you know, kind of communal discernment, which is a really rich tradition in the church and especially in religious orders, but mm -hmm. it's not one that we've been used to doing in the Catholic church as a whole. Uh, and so, yeah, 
just having that practice was a big part of the point but obviously that's not flashy either for the news so it was really it was difficult to to cover that was my big takeaway as a reporter yeah yeah i feel like francis again very much kind of leading by example he's like just going to tell us to talk and to listen he's actually going to model for us how to do that and mm -hmm. again as, as reading the document like again there's a very big expectation that local bishops would be able to kind of take this model and kind of implement that. Yeah, definitely. You know, and I think yeah, I think you really hit it on the head there where the, the whole point was of the process itself. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of people go in into the Senate thing, it's going to be a single issue, it's going to be all these hot button things. And no, it's been very wide ranging. Mm -hmm. Right. And I think and, you know, that it's just... also very Francis to get people together and force them to sit down and listen. I saw this in 2019, the last time I was in Rome, we were just talking about this before we started recording, uh, when he had a big summit on the sexual abuse crisis. And he had all these bishops from all over the world, all the heads of the bishops conferences from around the world come and sit and listen to survivors speak about their experiences. And it was a survivor from every continent. And a big part of it was just getting all these bishops together to realize, hey, this is a problem where you are. This is happening and you need to pay attention to it because this is a massive crisis in the church and it's not going to go away without you. Um, but yeah, the the forcing them all to sit down and listen is a is a tried and true Francis technique at this point. Yeah. Yeah. And again, I think the the listening is the big thing, you know, and again, there's some very powerful words in in the document, you know, about that. He says listening requires, well, he doesn't say that the, the <laughs> sentence says listening requires unconditional acceptance. Yeah. Right. Um, just being able to listen and to receive before responding, mm -hmm. you know, not to marshal your arguments or to cut people off. And again, I think that really, I think it was really cool. It said not just to listen to what people think, but the reasons that they think that. Yeah. And yeah. maybe even, it, again, maybe disagreeing with their conclusions, but even being able to hear the reasons and seeing how they got from point A to point B. Mm -hmm. Right. So very valuable. You know, really, again, it really expands the potential, I think, for common ground to be found. Yeah, which is a very Francis model of dialogue. If you even go back to Evangelii Gaudium, his first kind of programmatic document that he released at the beginning of his papacy, which that among like Vatican watchers, that's always like the thing to watch is the first document lays out the direction for the papacy. And in Francis's mm -hmm. Evangelii Gaudium, the joy of the gospel, he lays out this model of evangelization that is dialogical in exactly that way where the dialogue is based on finding common ground with the person you're talking to and building on that and trusting that as you build and build on that the things you disagree on will kind of fall away because you're building on what's important mm -hmm. yeah so on the uh again if the big takeaway here is what is a synod what is synodality again you see a lot of language that says that a uh, synodality represents the future of the church, mm -hmm. right? So what do, what do you think that means? What does it mean to be a synodal church? Yeah, right? sure. How do you think we could help people understand that? Yeah, just one extra thing I would add on the, the future of the church thing is the really mm -hmm. strong quote from Pope Francis back in 2015 and this big talk that he gave about uh, kind of reviving synodality is synodality is what God expects of the church in the third millennium. That's mm. like, that's really bold. Um, so what is it? Synodality is tough to define, uh, but I'll, I'll make my fumbling effort towards it. Mm -hmm. Basically, so let's go back. What is a synod? That's probably a good place to start before we get into the adjective. Break the word down, right? <laughs> yeah. So synod comes from this Greek term that is translated as walking together, journeying together. Um, 
It is a model that has been used in the Eastern Catholic tradition for a long time. So it's a way of, you know, getting a group together to make decisions. Uh, That's just kind of the very basic understanding of it. In the Roman Catholic tradition, it kind of fell out of practice. You know, we built ourselves a a pretty strong hierarchical structure that functioned very kind of top down. Uh, And so this communal decision making kind of stopped being part of that. Now, at mm-hmm. Vatican II, you get all these bishops from around the world, including the Eastern Catholics, they come together for an ecumenical council, and the Roman Catholics are like, oh, like we really like this. We like you know, working kind of in a college, collegiality, with these other bishops. Can we do this going forward? Can we make this like an instituted thing? And so they ask the Pope to do that. Paul VI is the Pope, and he... It's like, okay, yes, but he is a little cautious. He puts some limits on it. Basically, the synod is, as instituted by him in 1965, a body of, it's a, yeah, a consultative body, body. Yeah, a consultative body, a body of the bishops. So consultative versus deliberative. What does that mean? Consultative, they're making recommendations to the Pope. They're not making the decisions that then, like, he would be bound to. Um, right. And... As the decades progress and as you get even a little bit of this like hesitancy towards implementing Vatican II, you get some people who want to, you know, put put a pause on kind of how some of the more radical stuff. Um, you get this and it's becoming kind of this tool that the Pope uses to uh, write documents. So, you know, he'd gather a synod on like a certain topic, get the recommendations from the bishops it was all a little bit like, I don't want to say scripted, but it was very limited in what people felt free to discuss. Um, not just in staying on topic, but also like you wouldn't get people bringing up the idea of women deacons or whatever, right? Um, over time, this kind of becomes a thing where the bishops get tired of it too. They're like, why are we going just to sit here and like, have these meetings where you could basically write the final document before the meeting was held. And you just rubber stamp things or yeah, something. Yeah, yeah. Or you're you're drafting a document for the Pope to rubber stamp and then release as an apostolic exhortation after whatever. Um, yeah, so the Synod, you know, I, when Pope Francis became Pope, he had this quote saying that the Synod, as instituted by Paul VI, was, was half-baked compared to the vision of Vatican II. So what he's trying to do is get that back uh yeah back back on track um francis's whole papacy is a lot about implementing vatican ii so Mm -hmm. now what is the francis vision of synod so francis has made some changes to this standing body the synod of bishops uh for example he has appointed non-bishops to it uh that happened for the first time in this meeting um it's yeah, he's brought in, he made a, a, a woman, a religious sister, undersecretary, Sister Natalie Bacar, who I'm a big fan of. I think she's really cool. Um, he, yeah, made her an undersecretary. He appointed 54 women. So already there's this idea of bishops now working with other people in this collegial, uh, consultative, you know, decision-debating body. Um Pope Francis also sees this as a model for synodality. What does that mean? This is this idea of 
collaboration between the bishops and the lay people in sort of a communal discernment, consultative way still, um, that would trickle down to all levels of the church. So, you know, a synodal body would be like a parish council, parish finance council, which we're all supposed to have under canon law, but we don't. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's 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 kind of a matter of lay people taking on some more responsibility, I would say, and bishops sharing responsibility. This idea of co-responsibility that was so big after Vatican II. Uh, yeah, does that does that answer it? What, what synodality is, or do you think I need to more, talk more about it? No, I think that all all those principles are really good. I mean, as I read the document, it kind of just jumped out at me. Like, is a really easy way to defend de- define synodality is as a mode of accompaniment? Yeah, right. Like you said, as as a walking together, mm-hmm. you know. And I think Fran, again with the synod here, again we talked about listening already. I wonder if that's again one of the emphasis that he's trying to make, but. I don't, in my mind, that's really what it is. It's just accompaniment, right? It's an intentional walking oh, no, together. Kevin, you cut out. Can you say you that? Ag- can you say that again? Yeah. So I feel like the, uh, the again the accompaniment again. That's really what synodality is. Again, it's an emphasis on listening, you know, and a walking together. You know, he talks about the church is like a or in the document it says the church is like a mother, right? And we teach our children to walk not by describing it to them, mm-hmm. right, but by walking, actually walking with them, yeah. right? Almost like holding hands and and learning how to do this together. Um, and yeah, I think there's just a again a great beauty there of again me as a lay person, you as a lay person, not just to sit back and to, well, let's just see what happens here, but mm-hmm. to contribute our experiences, yeah, right? Absolutely. Our desires, the things that are real, right? So that others can know about them. It right? also not feels like, like being more mature in our faith and in mm-hmm. our identity as Catholics and our participation as, as members of this body, you know, we're not meant to just go to mass every day and sit there and say our responses and, you know, like make your donation and go, um, what we're supposed to do. And Vatican II was getting at this in, you know, emphasizing the full and active participation in the liturgy, right? This is the next step of that. We're meant to be full and active participants in the church. What does that mean? That doesn't mean that we all have to like have church jobs like you and me do, but Mm -hmm. it does mean that we have something to contribute in the life of the church and the church's evangelizing mission like we are we are the people who are out in the world sharing the gospel there's a maturity of faith here that is um yeah it's more than just like this more childish and i'm going to say childish rather than childlike because i'm going to try to have a, a slightly more negative context here but or subtext but you know the coming and listening and whatever and then just getting your you know getting your fill for the week and then going that's those days are over yeah you know i feel like it also um it kind of goes back to that vatican ii idea of tradition right that it's not uh tradition not something dusty that's been passed on by word of mouth tradition is a living dynamic thing yeah right yeah. that the holy spirit continues to be active in the church and that the way that i live my catholic faith the way you live your catholic faith the way we pass it on to our children contributes mm-hmm. to the dynamic living tradition of the church yeah. right and being able to again acknowledge the 
the role, the primacy of the Holy Spirit, not just in the church, in the bishops and the Pope, but even in our lives. Yeah, absolutely. Right. And being able to see where the, where the spirit moves, mm -hmm. you know, and being able to affirm that. Yeah. And so to go from that into some of the more practical stuff that came out of the synod, I mean, one of the big themes that emerged from this meeting's discussions was the need for formation in being a synodal church. And for lay people like us, that means formation in, you know, in contributing in this way, in being evangelizers, right? Like Lumen Gentium in Vatican II really saw lay people as the missionaries of the church in the world. And we definitely saw a, a call for more of that um, in, yeah, coming out of this document. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's been really, yeah. So let's, let's kind of look at the document a little bit. Sure. Um, what would you say is something in the document that, um, I don't know, really, really stood out to you? What is something that, um, yeah, you were surprised by maybe? Mm. Um, you know, I was surprised by something that was missing, actually, which is that they decided to forego the term LGBT, which I thought mm -hmm. was interesting because I, I know from my sources inside of the Synod, and I'm going to say not just Jim Martin, who I work with and who is very, like, you know, <laughs> devoted to this issue, um, but from other, other folks, too, that I know this was the topic of a lot of debate, um, a lot of questions about, you know, what exactly does inclusion look like? You know, how how are we meant to welcome LGBT Catholics in the church? Um, and yeah, it didn't it didn't make it into the final document. And that that surprised me. Um, but also, I understand why it was that there was not mm -hmm. a lot of consensus on that. And so any like mention of it didn't it probably wasn't going to receive the amount of yes votes that it would need to pass you know but mm. i think it you know it, it does note that there were divergences in in the conversations uh around mm -hmm. around this topic and i yeah i mean i i saw that in like uh they had released kind of the the, the rough draft of the report and then they released the final one that like, like they voted on and i saw that some of that was included in the in the original report and then it didn't make it into the final draft yeah. um and again i Obviously, when you read when you actually read the the final report, the halfway final report, it's the halfway report, right? You can obviously see again reference to people, right, who struggle with identity, mm -hmm. the church's closeness to them. Um, yeah, and I it's really like how it's interesting about, on that. Oh, sorry, it's interesting on that yeah. front that um, in the English translation it gets kind of simplified into matters of identity, whereas in uh, in the Italian, the original language, it was gender identity and sexual orientation so it's a little more specific in in that version yeah i liked how it situated kind of that con the, the controversial matters so to speak i really feel like it nailed it it says the question of the relationship between love and truth mm -hmm. you know and really really trying to find that balance right yeah. that it's not just going to be a cold sterile truth and it's not just going to be a um, a wishy-washy love right it said uh, oh, mercy man, on the you're cheap really good stuff right like, now that's and an i can't interesting phrase to put it you there? You know, yeah, I'm here. You hear me? Sorry, yeah, you cut out like right at the beginning of that, and I'm sure that you were about to say something really insightful. Oh, it was really good, yeah. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, the unity of love and truth, right? That, uh, again, what do we find the middle ground there? It's not a cold, sterile truth, and it's not just a wishy washy uh, mercy on the cheap, yes, so to speak. Yes, yeah, yeah. I think oh, that's exactly that's... how they phrased it, right? <laughs> yeah, they put it in quotes, and I was like, that didn't help me. That's kind of a weird, mm -hmm. weird thing to say. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, searching for that middle ground, mm -hmm. you know, searching for the, the both and of love and truth and not, yeah, skewing one way or the other. Yeah, and this was the, um, 
this was the question that they were tasked with discussing that brought up all of this discussion of of LGBT folks and and their place in the church. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just again, I know it was a little frustrating for for you and for us. Like, well, what did people actually say? You know, what were Real. the stories shared? How how deep did these conversations go? How heated did it get? Yeah. You know, I mean, I mean, were we there know punches a bit thrown? About like, that. I <laughs> I can talk a little about that. I have I have some knowledge of of the more heated moments I, i'll mention well, one sure thing. yeah i mean again i'm not trying to yeah create like a i don't know <laughs> like gossip or anything yeah i mean if you'd like no. to share a little bit more about how those how those conversations went um yeah i mean yeah, just the fact that they happened is so important for yeah just to note that like i mean this was so different from past synods and that people really could like disagree and have those heated disagreements but also that people were committed to the process so one example of this is there was a prelate um, who stormed out of the meeting. And hmm. his main issue was, you know, he said, this is not a synod of bishops. This is not, you know, he, I, I don't know, me reading into it is that maybe he was not used to being in these types of meetings with lay folks. Um, but yeah, just that was a big question was whether this type of meeting is eroding a bishop's authority. Um, mm -hmm. And then on the LGBT issue, another uh, like really dramatic moment was when someone stood up and told the story of a young Polish woman who was bisexual, who um, went to confession and was denied absolution. And mm. she went home and she died by suicide. And like, mm that that was the last testimony that people in the hall heard that evening and we heard that you could hear a pin drop in the hall that it was really affecting for people some people were so overwhelmed with emotion they had to leave the room after they heard this story like i i, I tell these stories just to say like it got really real in there you know mm -hmm. and i'm sure that we'll get more of the stories as as time goes on um but yeah, even though this document kind of avoids some of the, the more controversial stuff, like this was a place where those things could be discussed and where mm -hmm. people were not holding back how they really felt. And I think that just like compared to the sort of stilted past synods, this is this is a big step forward towards just like honesty, people really mm -hmm. being heard. Um yeah, and I think very real the whole smell of the sheep thing for Francis, right? For like real. actually meeting where they are. Yeah, yeah. So I, I don't know. I think you know one of the cardinals, American cardinals, who was in the synod, talked to my colleague Jerry O'Connell, who's our Vatican correspondent. He said, you know, there's no going back after this. Like this is how synods are going to go from now on, and mm. I think that can only be a good thing. You know. Yeah having to deal with people's actual real lived experiences. Pope Francis often says reality is greater than ideas. And I think mm -hmm. in that way, this is, this is really good. Yeah. It's a lot messier and it's a lot more, it's a lot more work. Totally. And you know, the messiness is the thing that, that drives people crazy about Francis, but that I appreciate about him. Right. For, for a long time, we've had popes who, you know, as moral teachers, they, the way to do that in their their approach was to kind of lay out an ideal layout you know here's what the church is proposing isn't it beautiful and then we all strive to that but that didn't always leave room for people who are stuck in difficult or messy situations uh and now francis comes and he's really ministering to the people in the gray area and 
that drives some people crazy because they like, no, he's watering it down. But I think that, you know, that is, Jesus didn't stay away from the gray areas, right? I think, yeah. You know, I think being able to recognize in ourselves our desire for comfort, our desire for things that we're used to, a desire for things that I can handle and that I understand. and. Again, that's a very human thing mm-hmm. to kind of to be there and to kind of be complacent in that. But obviously, yeah, again, not what the Lord wants, yeah. right? To be able to have those conversations to, again, encounter people where they are, mm-hmm. right? Not stand at the finish line and cheer them on, like, come on, you can meet it. Come over here yeah, with them and, yeah, finish, run the race with them, exactly. right? Accompany them. Exactly. Kind of on the way. Walking together, running together. Simplicity. Yeah. <laughs> One of the things I'd like to talk about uh, now, again, something as as I read the document, I had to keep reminding myself that this was a global synod, mm-hmm. right? As I read it, I'm very much, oh, they're they're talking to me as yeah. an American Catholic, and it's like, yes, but again, it's also to everyone, mm-hmm. right? And trying to keep that in mind, and even as we talk about synodality in the wider church, that's going to look different in Italy, in Europe, and Africa, and Asia mm-hmm. than it does here in America, Yeah, you know? And again, I really, uh, one of the things I really liked about this was it talked about how, again, the person of the bishop, right, how important they are in the diocese. And I feel like, again, one of the things that used here, it said uh, the bishop can't become a, uh, like a civil, ma- a civil authority figure. Mm-hmm. I feel like it's what the bishop has become for a lot of us, mm-hmm. right? Not so much as a as a, I don't know, it sounds weird to say not so much as a spiritual leader, you know, we kind of reckon, we kind of look at the bishop as an administrative one. Yeah. Yeah. You know? And yeah. What, what, how do you feel like the synod is envisioning kind of the role of bishop maybe shifting in, like you said, in this third millennium? Yeah. I think that that's something that's still kind of being hashed out for sure. I mean, this is, this is also a big question for priests, for lay people, mm-hmm. like what is, what is, each person's role in the synodal church i know the the parish priests have felt really like conflicted about this throughout the synodal process because there's all this talk about moving away from clericalism and they're like okay but like what does that mean for my role what what is my role because there's a lot mm-hmm. of talk about what it's not um so i do think, it's been their role for hundreds of years yeah <laughs> like, right what? right and same. i mean same for bishops so mm-hmm. I think this is something that's going to continue being discussed in these 11 months until the next Synod Assembly next year. I also think it'll be like kind of fleshed out by the next Synod Assembly and then in coming years. So we're very much at the beginning of this. But, you know, some practical things that have been implemented elsewhere, uh, for example, in Germany, the bishops usually have like a pastoral council of lay people who they're discussing decisions with and you know really putting a lot of weight on like what the what the communally discerned like uh path forward would be so ultimately the bishop is still the one uh taking the decision there's this like the british have this helpful diff- distinction between making a decision and taking the decision but the ones implementing the decision um mm-hmm. you know the bishop is is still making the decision but taking into account all of what has been discussed i think that that is a model that we'll probably see going forward more and is definitely something that the mm-hmm. synodal process is is pointing towards yeah you know i feel like um in the in the time leading up to the synod you know with all the diocesan synods and kind of and things like that and i know that y'all had reported on 
varying amounts of effort yeah. in the American church yes. uh, to <laughs> that, kind of that story to, where I called every single diocese in America. <laughs> yeah, that was funny, but kind of how each diocese, yeah, it kind of varies on the amount of effort that they're putting in. Yeah, but it seems like reading reading this document that was released, like there's an expectation that dioceses even now are going to read this, reflect on it, even putting some of this into practice. Yeah. You know, like, do you feel like that's, are we going to kind of see some varying levels of effort, do you think? Yeah, I do. Um, you know, the the question now is whether we'll see greater effort coming out of this synod, right? Uh, the mm -hmm. synod's been really into this idea of what they call circularity. So anytime something is discussed at, like, a national level, a continental level, and then now at the universal church level in Rome, uh, they want things to be then cycled back to the local churches so that, you know, maybe you're a group in your parish, or your campus ministry is like looking at this final document or maybe a summary of it because it's kind of long and saying, you know, what can we do differently? How can we kind of take this and go forward? Because an important part of the 11 months between the meetings is going to be like kind of developing this, continuing to practice it. That's also part of why it was so important that this is it was mostly bishops in the hall. And so that's mm -hmm. a lot of people who have had this like synod boot camp experience and now who are going to go home and can spend that 11 months practicing this, seeing how it works. And then, you know, then bring that experience back to the assembly next mm -hmm. year. Um, yeah. So, I mean, yeah, of course, there's going to be varying levels of actually doing that. Like here in New Orleans, the synod process is not really caught on. I think the discussion groups were done with a pretty small selected group of people, you know? Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. So I've found in my reporting that at least in the U S the bishops who had previous experience with hosting like diocesan synods uh, were more prepared to then take on this synodal process. They were the ones who kind of fed back the, the most, um, yeah, feedback, fed back the most feedback to to yeah. the USCCB, to the Continental Face, to the Vatican. Um, I, I do hope that maybe this experience and the bishops sharing it at their meeting, which is just around the corner, their November meeting. Uh, That's what I was going to ask about. Yeah, I was like, yeah, that, that my, happens every year, right? And, yeah, so my hope is that, you know, maybe they'll spend some time talking about this. I think it is on the agenda, um, and then mm -hmm. the other bishops might come along slowly. Yeah, again, I, I do feel like for most of the bishops in the United States, again, I think they want to kind of act in concert. Mm -hmm. I think they, they desire to act as a whole. Um, yeah, not having kind of, yeah, things varying too much from diocese to diocese. So mm -hmm. I'm sure that's probably a, a concern for some bishops as they, again, attempt to implement this. They want to, again, present it in a way that isn't confusing, in a way that this is what we've talked about. Like, yeah, I can, I can see that. But and again, it's going to be a very different way of doing things. Yeah, and you know, some I used to have a teacher in high school. Um, she was a, a a nun, and she would say, "If you keep doing what you're doing, you're going to keep getting what you're getting." <laughs> you know, and I feel like the way that we've been doing things, right, in the church as a whole, in the American church, if we keep doing things like that, we're going to keep getting what we're getting, and we're not getting a lot of good stuff. Yeah. You know, where you can look at the trends and look at the numbers, and like things are certainly trending downwards. And I, I think we're, it's incumbent upon us to do something different, you know? So 
you know, maybe maybe this is the way forward. Maybe it's a modification of this. Maybe it's something entirely different, but at least we're trying something. Right, for real. You know, and then we can see kind of see where it goes, but I don't know. I feel like it's it's kind of what the definition of insanity, right? Trying to do the same thing over mm-hmm. and over and expecting it to be different. And it's like, it's not going to be in programs. It's not going to be top down. It's going to be, again, maybe it's this model of a listening church. Yeah. You know, that we kind of need to give it a fair shake and see, again, how the spirit moves. One thing that, I've found this is helpful for is rebuilding the church's credibility, which obviously Mm -hmm. suffered such a massive blow, you know, after the abuse crisis, uh, which is continuing, right? We're still grappling with like the truth of that and making changes. The U S church has done a lot and is basically seen as a a world leader now uh, in, Mm -hmm. in the universal church on addressing abuse. But uh, the listening part I mean, it's obvious to say, but it helps people feel heard. And for so mm-hmm. long in the crisis of credibility that, that came out of the abuse scandal, people were saying, you know, this is a church that is not listening to survivors that doesn't care. And that is also eroding the church's credibility on so many other issues, right? Mm-hmm. So at least to be able to say we're putting in place like a, a good faith listening effort is huge. And I think it will hopefully, my hope is that it does a lot to rebuild that credibility, rebuild that trust. Mm-hmm. And again, that's a, I'm a, I'm a big Sherry Waddell fan, right? The threshold of conversion. We have to start with trust, you know, again, pre-evangelization, you know, and it's really easy to, it's easy to want to assume everybody's on the threshold of discipleship. And that really isn't the case. Mm-hmm. That's a low percentage of the people in the pews. That's a low percentage of the people that aren't coming to church. Mm-hmm. You know, and I feel like it really, again, going to meet them where they are at, listening to their concerns, helping them feel heard, right? So when we do respond, even if it's not what they want to hear, right? It's like, well, at least they listened. At least yeah. they, again, maybe if they listen to me, maybe I'm willing to listen to them. Yeah, and I think the hope is also that like some of what, what, the church has heard in the listening process. And I realize I'm being imprecise with my terms because the church is all of us, but you know, Mm -hmm. the people who are making the decisions, um, that, that what they've heard is then going to affect the decisions they make. Right. Like we have to have faith, that what comes out of this is different from what would have come out had there been no listening. Right. And I I think it's hard to see sometimes. Yeah. If I've read it or heard it somewhere, like, someone had, somebody was dialoguing with a bishop or something about this, maybe in the synodal, I don't know, but they were like, they had asked, asked him like, well, when, when's the last time you talked to a young person? Yeah. <laughs> when's the last time you, you talked to a college student or had a conversation with someone who was married? Mm-hmm. You know, I'm not sure how the bishop responded, but I feel like, again, it's very easy to avoid those things unintentionally. You know, again, the bishop's yeah. a busy guy. He's got a lot to do. Right. A lot of important things it's to do. It's real easy and, to get locked up in the chancery and not interact mm-hmm. with folks. Yeah. Or like you said, kind of getting trapped in ideals and not reality. Yeah, exactly. You know? Yeah. I think I that's a temptation for some of the more academic uh, bishops, you know? Yeah. And again, there's there's good there in the oh, ideals. Of course. Yeah. Right. And again, I don't I certainly wouldn't think that they're doing that with the with I don't know, with some sort of ulterior motive or some no. sort of like, yeah a bad disposition of heart or something, no. but, but recognizing that it's going to be, it's going to take an effort again mm-hmm. of, of doing things differently, yeah. you know, of letting, yeah. Of prioritizing. Right. Well, yeah, because as a, as a Bishop, you're not just a teacher. You're also a pastor. 
it's both mm -hmm. and so <laughs> classic catholic both and um yeah right but yeah so you also have to be paying attention to like okay the, the things that i'm teaching how are they being applied in people's lives what are the difficulties you know really paying attention to the lived yeah. experience of the people yeah yeah and again like in, in, with the listening sessions even now like we did in like various parishes and Again, I would I would assume the bishop like someone gave him a report on what was said or what was talked about, mm -hmm. and again for him to kind of get the sense of in our in our area of the diocese like this is what people were concerned with. This is what people is was on their hearts. This is what the things that are hard for them, and that yeah he's able to respond to that right as a as a good father would right to kind of care for our needs, uh, to care for our spiritual welfare, you know. And again, that's that that's an attitude, mm -hmm. right? And Again, it might it might take some practice. It might, like I said, take some extra effort. But I feel like that's that's where we need to make those efforts, mm -hmm. you know. And again, incumbent upon you and incumbent upon me, right, to be responsive, right. I know, like for me personally, if we're being honest, I didn't go to like the local like listening session that we had here mm -hmm. leading up to the synod, you know, like. And I know a lot of people didn't, right? Yeah. And that's a big, a big criticize cr critique people have is like, well, barely anyone participated, and it's like, well, that's not the bishop's fault. It's not Pope Francis's fault, <laughs> you know? Like the sessions were there, and yeah, mm -hmm. you could argue there should have been more, or that you they could have been more widespread, but like, they had the things, yeah, right. And even someone like me who's very invested, like I didn't. I, I mean, I filled out, I filled out a thing online. I remember doing that, okay. you know, but I didn't. I don't know. I don't feel like I did my part as much. Yeah. Well, good news. It's not over. So <laughs> it's right. not too late. Uh, but yeah, uh, the other thing is like, if people are like, oh, it was only 1% of Catholics in the US. What else has brought together that many people? You know, like, this was still in terms of scale, like the largest listening session ever attempted. <laughs> the <laughs> largest meeting ever. Right? Yeah, it's, I, it's amazing. I yeah, it's it's baby steps, but like you know, I think we can be impressed with what they've done too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, one of my other uh, favorite quotes or interesting quotes, I guess, from the document was it talked about the preferential option for young people. Yeah, you know, and again, I, I hear all the time a preferential option for the poor. It's mm -hmm. one of the core tenets of, of Catholic social teaching. Um, so for them to say that, right? Again, for me was like, whoa, dang, they're a that because I know how big of a, a principle that is for the poor, and it's now it says a preferential option for young people. Yeah, I think that that right? came out of the working document. I think that that language was also included in that, and I'm pretty sure that it came uh, in part from the digital synod. Which, mm -hmm. uh, sorry, they don't want us calling it the digital synod. It was all one synodal process. But I've talked with some folks who were uh, big in in arranging that. It was. They basically treated the digital world as another continent and had like listening sessions online and and fed mm. it back to the Vatican the way that the other continents did. Um, but yeah, this is this was this idea that you know for so long the Vatican and I, you know even Catholic theologians to an extent have talked about uh, digital t media, social media, the internet as a means for communication. Uh, kind of one way you know way of disseminating catholic teaching and mm -hmm. there was a real shift over the course of this synodal process to view the online space as a space as a world as a culture in need of evangelization and 
that raises questions of enculturation like any other mission territory does super interesting so i think that that idea is like still in its infancy but it'll be really interesting to see how this grows and i i feel that you know with the the preferential option for young people that's the the digital space where where we live so much of our lives is is going to be a big part of that and i feel like especially with young people there there might be more of an openness to a synodal church Mm mm-hmm you know, in there, you see all the statistics of them trying to like find unity among each other and being able to dialogue and to respect and to accept, again, people for where they are at, you know, and I wonder, again, if we're moving forward as a synodal church that we lean on the attitudes of the young, Oh yeah. you know, we lean more on kind of, I don't know, letting them kind of be, be the face or be the, be the voice. Yeah. On some level, you know, World Youth Day this year was done in a really different way than past ones. Mm-hmm. This this was this past summer in Lisbon, Portugal, and mm-hmm. it they called it kind of like the first synodal World Youth Day. And instead of going and listening to catechesis and then you know going to your big like Stations of the Cross events or whatever, the catechesis sessions were in small group discussions, and it was again this. We haven't talked yet about this, but this conversation in the spirit method, that's what they've been calling it in the synod, where you had young people sitting around with a bishop or a priest, whoever was the teacher of the catechism, and going around speaking about their experiences and building on that good and being honest about the challenges. Like, oh my God, we need so much of that, you know? Like, I'm sure you experience this in campus ministry where, like, those conversations where you're like grappling with the teaching and and talking about how to actually live it like those are so like enlightening and edifying and they really like help you apply this stuff to your real life in in a way that just like being lectured to doesn't mm-hmm. really do you have a little bit of time to like reflect on that during a lecture, but you're going to be missing what they're saying. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. As, as an RCI director, when I, when I talk to people and again, they have all their questions and things like that. And, yeah. you know, they're often like, well, this is really hard for me. I'm still kind of struggling with this. And I'm like, I would hope that you struggle with that here. Yeah. You know, that I feel like we do as a, a bad job as a short, as a church of creating a space where it's okay for people to ask questions and to wrestle, right? You know, that we're going to still be close to them, still encourage them. Mm -hmm. You know, I oftentimes I tell a lot of people like you're asking the right questions, Mm -hmm. right? I know it's hard, the questions that you're asking, and you might not have gotten the answers that you want, you know, or you might be thinking about how that might apply, but this is the place I want you to do it. Yeah. I don't want you to, to leave the church and to try to do this alone. Yeah. Right. I want you to do that here. Yeah. Right. And I want you to feel known and loved even in the places where you feel like you are not perfect right and you know that i can still accept them there and this is a place not just where you come for answers but where you come for accompaniment as you try mm-hmm. to live into those answers yeah yeah i can't tell you that i'll never forget this one conversation where i was meeting with someone in rcia and they were in a an imperfect living situation <laughs> Right. Don't you and, love that? How, yeah. yeah, that phrasing. Yeah. And they came in and talked to me. And again, I feel like I'm very, uh, very welcoming in that. And I don't bite their heads off or things like that. And we had a really good conversation about that. And uh, as this person was leading, they said, man, that went a lot better than I thought. And yeah. I was like, okay. I feel like I wasn't like especially eloquent or anything like that. I was like, I was a human being. Like, what, what did you think was going to happen? She was, and she said, oh, man, I, 
I walked in here and people were like, man, he's going to, he's going to rip you a new one. He's going to bite your oh head off. You need, to, you need to go in there and kind of like, you need to stick to your guns and yeah. you need to just stand up for yourself. And I'm like, I can't believe you even showed up for this meeting. Yeah, right. right. If that's the attitude that that people expect, it is. It is so just by being is. a human being, it's like, oh man, I'm doing pretty good. Yeah. I mean, you know? look, I I don't know. I have a very like incarnational spirituality, and I'm just like, we believe in a God who chose to become human. He did that mm-hmm. for a reason. You know, clearly that says something about how God wants to relate to us, and it's it's not as thundering from on high. It's like as entering into people's lives. Yeah. Um, so, um, getting close to finishing up here. Um, again, obviously I think you and I very much appreciate the Synod. I know that's not the case for everyone. Um, where, where do you, why do you, I guess this, even the document itself is like, we need to figure out why people are resistant to this and kind of explore that more. Why do you feel like there is some resistance, um, to kind of this new mode of doing things? Um, yeah, where, where have you kind of seen like an, a, a different kind of point of view or people that are maybe more hesitant or cautious? What do you, what do we kind of chalk that up to? Yeah, I mean, you know, it's hard to paint with broad brush strokes here. And so anything I, I say in response to this is, is going to be too simple. And I know that. Um, I think that it's really a question of like, what does this mean for like the teaching authority of the church? What does it look like for people who are not part of the hierarchy to be still part of the church's, yeah, part of the church's teaching authority? So what I mean is like, we have this, you know, feedback that's coming from people who are obviously not living perfect lives. And I should say like, neither are the bishops or priests, right? So it's not that different. You, you and I are, but yeah. yeah no, right. Oh, well, us are perfect. Yeah, right. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, but so what does it mean for all these different people to be involved in kind of communicating the church's message and in, in working to make decisions together? What does it mean for lay people to be involved in administration? And I think the people who are hesitant about this are people who, you know, were like, okay, but no, like we had a we had a good way of doing things. We had a set way of doing things. If it ain't broke, don't fix it, right? And mm-hmm. Yeah, because I don't know that it's inherently broken. I think what it is is that it's, like I said earlier, it's it's aging into a greater maturity in our participation as lay people. Like if you read Lumen Gentium, if you read the documents of Vatican II, lay people are meant to be evangelizers. We're meant to be, you know, living a really active role in in the church's life in the world, um, and so. Yeah, I just think that, you know, there's there's hesitancy around why are we changing this? What does this change mean? Uh and and to what extent is it a change? That's that's what I would say. Um yeah. I think that's again, what people that to. again to to be charitable, yeah. right? To recognize that people that are hesitant again have good uh, have good desires, want want yeah. the best for the church. Uh, and in a lot right. of cases, it's the people whose like jobs are being most affected by this, right? It's yeah. you know there was a big talk in the Senate about, and I think it's mentioned in the Instrumental Memorialis, the working document as well that they were working off of during this meeting. But like, parish priests are some of the most uh, resistant people they've seen to the Senate, and it's like why? Well, because there's so many questions raised about your job and your role and how you're meant to do things. And 
and then the the role of the parish priest like i think that's where we see one of the greatest places where someone's being asked to to give up power to cede some power to to share responsibilities that until now was just on their shoulders and they could make the decision mm -hmm. and not be questioned and that was that um yeah so i you know i think that i have compassion for people who are resistant to it because a lot of the times it's people who are most affected by it and have maybe what feels like the most to lose mm -hmm. so uh one of the, uh, interesting question i had i'm not sure if you know the answer to this um when the synod meets again next october mm -hmm. um i know they'll, they will release uh another document at the end of that like their recommendations to pope francis mm -hmm. do you expect it to look like this document? I mean, no, do they know what it's going to look like yet? Or <laughs> They don't know what it's going to look like. You know, I, I've had a lot of conversations with like the people who are at the top of the Senate organizing uh, process and they just keep saying, they're like, yeah, you know, my, my document for next year is blank. <laughs> mm -hmm. They, So I know one concern with this document that they just released, this was the final document out of the first meeting, was that they mm -hmm. don't want it to be the instrumentum laboris, the working document for the next meeting. They're really anticipating a lot of like deepening of the discussion, continuing, you know, debates and so on, uh, going on for these 11 months. And then presumably right before that meeting, I, I am betting that they will get together again to kind of go through all of the feedback that they've gotten so far and then name the questions that are going to need to be discussed at the next meeting. And so, mm -hmm. no, we don't know yet what those are going to be. We could probably guess at some of them, but mm -hmm. you know, that would just be speculation, which is not my, my favorite kind of journalism to do. Uh, yeah. And then, yeah, what comes out of that, what recommendations they'll make to the Pope. I think, I don't know how much I'm counting on it being like really groundbreaking what they recommend just because there's, it's hard to get a consensus on a lot of things. As we talked about earlier, there are some real disagreements in the Synod Hall. And so what they're able to like congeal on <laughs> as a, as a, um, sorry, that was just such a gross word choice. <laughs> what they're able yeah. to come together on, <laughs> what they're able to come together on, uh, you know, is it's kind of hard to put your finger on and it's hard for, for them to come together on many things. I think whatever they do come together on, it's going to be a strong statement that like, this is something that's really needed because you get such diverse people coming together and agreeing on it. Um, and then what the Pope does at the end of all this is also an open question. You know, what is yeah. he going to decide to do? I think one of the things we'll definitely see is a big overhaul of seminary formation that's already been called for in this document. You know, people recognize that like, hey, if you've got seminarians who are going to be priests working in the world with lay people, like, taking them out of society and putting them all in one building together for like six years is not the ideal way to prepare them. So I think that we'll yeah. definitely see, see changes in that. Um, and as for what else comes, I don't know. We just have to wait and see. Yeah. Yeah. You know, even, even with, you know, the final document that they'll release, you know, I don't feel like the Synod is super interested in suggesting a one size fits all. That's policy. also true. You know? Yeah, we saw that after the Amazon Synod, just to like take an right. example, where uh, the Synod body of Amazonian bishops and and experts, uh, the bishops voted to have, uh, they voted that they were open to ordaining 
mature married men as priests to help with their priest shortage. And the reason that Pope Francis didn't, you know, then put that into practice was in part because this is a pretty uniquely Amazonian region need and solution to that need where they have these really established community leaders who are these mature married men. Um, Mm -hmm. And so what we'll probably see happen and what we've seen the Amazon bishops putting into place a, uh, a structure to do is to re-suggest that to the Pope as just a one region solution, one right. region practice, and that the Pope could approve just for use in the Amazon region. I think we could see more of that coming out where there's different practices that are approved for different parts of the church depending on need. And that's also a very Jesuit thing to take yeah. things on a case-by-case basis. Yeah. I always have to remind myself that sometimes like Francis is a Jesuit, oh, right? Yeah. And it's a very unique way of looking at things. It does. And it you informs know. everything. And honestly, he is now like stacked the leadership of the church with a lot of Jesuits too. So having some some understanding of Ignatian spirituality has helped me a lot <laughs> with yeah. understanding what's going on in there. Yeah. Yeah. All right, Colleen. Um, anything else? Any any closing statement you'd like to make? Any uh, I don't know words of wisdom to leave with our college students? Oh, girl, I am not the source of wisdom. <laughs> um, <laughs> I don't know. We didn't talk about conversation in the spirit, uh, which I I see was over here in your outline. But I, just briefly, I, I want to say what that is because mm-hmm. I want to encourage people to do it. Um, because I've I've had experiences of it, and it was really transformative. I think. This was how my, uh, I think this is how my reading group for Fratelli Tutti worked back in 2020, but it was amazing. So Mm -hmm. you get in a circle, usually you're like reading something together or whatever, or you're discussing a certain question. Everyone has come having prayed on and thought about either the text or the question before. And then you go around once in a circle. Everybody has a set amount of time to speak. This was kind of funny. In the Synod Hall, everybody had three minutes, and they started cutting off people's mics after three minutes. It was like, get out, you're done. Um, (laughs) Yeah. So everybody goes around, says their initial response uh, to what they've read, what they've prayed on. You sit for a couple minutes of silence. Reflect on what you've just heard. Then you go around again, and you give your response to what you've just heard, what spoke to you in that. This is not a place for you to like give part two of what you had prepared, which some people I have heard in the Senate Hall did. Uh, but by and large, it was people who were actually listening and, and praying with what mm-hmm. they were hearing. You go around the warm time and do that. Uh, and then, you know, where you go next kind of depends on what your goal is, whether you're trying to then like put together a, a statement or whatever. You know, they put together a summary of places where. There were convergences and divergences. But yeah, after that second round of listening, it does open to like a bigger conversation where people can kind of chip in. But it really fosters that spirit of listening. And I've found that if you do it right, it is a really fruitful way for like God to speak to you through others and kind of challenge your own beliefs and then have a a kind of space of charity in which to do that listening Mm -hmm. and responding. Um, yeah, it can be a really transformative experience, especially if you have different like life experiences represented in that circle. Um, yeah. So yeah, I would. I think that like just this method of conversation is also a great fruit of the synod so far, and my hope is that you know people will will try this out um, because yeah, I really think it can be transformative. Yeah. 
again, just to try, yeah, right? Like just said, to try. We're not asking to people to do anything too crazy. Like just you know, give it a shot. You yeah. know, again, if it things, yeah, we need to change some things. Mm-hmm. You know, we need how we do things at least, and we got to start somewhere. Yeah, you know, and. Well, and like what, what harm could it possibly do to sit and talk to each other and just get it out there? Pope Francis has um, somewhat controversial marriage advice that he used to give as Bishop (laughs) of Argentina, where he would say, um, (laughs) he would say, you know, it's going well when the plates are flying, like, (laughs) which was shocking to me the first time somebody said this to me right after I got married. But basically it's like, Get it all out there. Get your disagreements out there. Talk about it. Talk through it. Because the alternative is like quiet resentment that just grows. And that is terrible for everyone. Yeah. Splitting even more, right? Going more to the, yeah. Exactly. Solidifying, hardening. Yeah. Instead of looking for areas of agreement and communion. Yeah. And it also helps you see the other person like as a human, you know? I think it's Mm -hmm. really easy, especially in like our like Catholic Twitter discourse or whatever, where people just are willing to dismiss other people way too quickly and and forget that they're people, you know? I, as like a very Vatican II person, need to sit down with my like Latin mass brothers and sisters and just talk, talk about our different liturgical preferences, talk about our ideas, talk about where we're finding God and where we're finding it difficult to find God. Ah, that's like that's exactly what we need i just i can't i cannot stress this enough yeah and it's hard right? it is but yeah. it's so worth it exactly yeah all right colleen well thank you so much for your time this morning thank you um, kevin this is good for those of you who are listening uh colleen will be coming to saint mary's next year so after yeah. the synod in november she will come to give an in-person talk and kind of again Kind of similar to this, but again, what that second session has been like, what it means for the church, and we're very excited to to welcome her next year. So uh, look forward to seeing you then. Um, If not sooner, who knows what the Lord has in store. (laughs) God willing, right? Yeah, thank you so much, Kevin. I appreciate it. This has been great. All right. God bless, Colleen. Thank you.